What starts with W and ends with T? It really does, I swear. Some of them didn't have their coffee. Okay, I got a little context to that. We're on our road trip in Lemuel, who normally sitting up here, probably out on a mission somewhere, telling somebody about Jesus this morning. He likes to send his dad jokes over to me. And I got it on the road in a hotel room on Facebook Messenger, and I shared it with the family. Lemuel asked me how the boys took it. I said they rolled their eyes. But that's the sign of a true dad joke, right? If the kids roll their eyes, it's a, it's a good dad joke. If they don't, you miss the mark. <laughs> or your wife. <laughs> or your wife, yeah. That happened to you sometimes too, Jay. We're not, you're not alone. What starts with W and ends with T? The bigger question you're asking is why is he sharing that right now? That's a good question because I have a lot of what questions to put out there this morning in our message as we wrap up the very last section of the book of Galatians. I want to ask us some what questions because I believe in what Paul writes, we find these questions underneath the surface. The, the main question is this, what, what drives my spiritual life and the ministry that I do? Also, what drives the spiritual life and ministry of the leaders that I have chosen to follow? But before we get into those what questions, we got to jump into verse 11. Paul says something interesting, Galatians 6.11. I'd encourage you to turn there. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. They say, why is Paul saying that? Well, many of you know that a lot of Paul's letters that he sent to churches, he dictated to other people who would write them down. That's why in one of his letters, you see a man named Tertius saying, I, Tertius, greet you. He was the one that was writing down Paul's words. But Paul is saying here is, I'm writing this with my own hand, either this last section, 11 to 18, or something, maybe this whole book. But he says, with what? large letters say, well, what's going on with that it's kind of a weird detail to include in a book of the Bible well this was a letter it was very personal why the large letters we can't say for 100% certain but some have said is that because of the eye problems he may have had that we alluded to a couple chapters ago you know if you can't see well you have to write with large letters so you can see and remember what you wrote right was it that or, or was it our equivalent of putting something in bold type or all caps, like it, this is that important, Galatians, listen up. Maybe it was some combination of the two, but whatever the case, these last seven, eight verses that we're in today were very important to Paul, important enough that he wrote them in his own hand. And within them, he's going to ask us four sub what questions under that main one that I asked you a few minutes ago. The first one is this. What are the motives in my spiritual life? What are my motives in my spiritual life? Is the focus on external appearance? What other people see? 
or is it on an internal reality? What, what is eternal life? John 17, 3. Jesus says eternal life is that they may know God, know him and the one who sent him, right? Eternal life is knowing God, okay? Is that where my spiritual life flows from, or is it this attempt to impress people? Why do I say that? Verse 12, the false teachers in Galatia focus a lot on the external appearance. Verse 12 says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. They love the standing that came with leading other people to be circumcised with them. They, they loved the way that made them look as teachers. They wanted to make a good showing in the flesh. At our house, I got into an interesting conversation with our oldest son, Jaden, about good works. And he was talking about how even unbelievers do some good works, right? And I'm like, yeah, you look around, unbelievers do some, some good things. Uh, more to the point in a room that has many believers, sometimes even believers do things out of the flesh. But what we talked about is what, what is the difference? What should be the difference between a believer when he or she does good works and an unbeliever? And I, I think it comes down to at least two things. It comes down to the fact that believers should have a different motivation. We should do it for a different reason. Not to make a good showing in the flesh like these guys. What are some right motives for believers to do good things? I think about what Jesus himself said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That should be at the top of the list. Our love for the Savior leads us to obey him. Is that why I do the things I do in my spiritual life? I think about Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said some blunt words. We ought to listen well. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, you read that list of works, just humanly speaking, that's like quite a, a resume, right? Some of us would say, I'd like to show up before God with a resume like that if we're banking on works, right? But what was the issue here? Was the issue that they didn't do enough? Was that the issue at all? No. How do we know that? What does Jesus say in verse 23? He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Part of what's at issue here is you and I cannot do enough to earn the righteousness of God. It all comes back to that relationship of faith and love with God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so another question people sometimes wrestle with in this passage, did these folks that showed up there once have salvation 
and then somehow lose it? No. How do we know that? What does he say? He says, I never, I never knew you. I never knew you. Love and faith motivate us. What about the glory of God? Not making myself look good, but does this make God look good in the eyes of those watching? John 8, 29. The words of Jesus. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always do the things that are pleasing to him. And that's the risen Savior that lives in you, believer, that lives in me. He loved pleasing his Father. Do we? Do we? We should have a different motivation, but our good works also come from a different source, a different power source. Our good works should not be powered by the flesh, though sometimes they are, because there's a difference between a work of the flesh and a fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Another question dealing with motive. Is the focus in my life on finding the path of least resistance, the easy road, or is it faithfulness to Jesus? No matter where it leads me. Why do I bring that one up? He goes on in verse 12, talking about these false teachers. They had another motive. Why do they preach circumcision? He says, only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, many of these false teachers were Jewish people who had, had heard about salvation and freedom and Christ alone. But they knew that if they did not preach circumcision as a requirement, that other Jews would persecute them for that. So they had a choice to make. Will we preach the truth or will we take the easy road so that we are not persecuted? We know what the false teachers chose, but I want to ask us about our lives today. Do I believe what I believe? Do I live how I live because it's what God has said? Or do I shape my beliefs and my actions based on a desire to please the world and avoid persecution? That's an important question we all got to bring before the Father. Another question, is my focus on statistics or hearts? Verse 13, he gets to another one of their motives. He says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. He, what he's saying, he's like, they talk about this one act, but even they don't, don't keep the law. It's not, it's not a real deal with them. This is one thing they're focusing on, but why? They, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. What's that mean? Well, most believe, and I agree, that they were looking at these Galatians and other people. If they could get these people to accept circumcision as required before God, they counted each individual as a notch on their belt. I got another one. I got another one. And we got to be careful about viewing people that way even today. In, in the true church, we can focus on notches on our belts. What do we sometimes choose to focus on? How many butts we got in the seats? How many bucks in the offering? Even good things, if we forget the significance of them, if, if we 
begin to focus on how many people we baptized this year without going on to ask the question, are these folks who realized their salvation was only in Jesus alone and they love him and they're doing this out of obedience to him or are these folks doing this for another reason? Even professions of faith. If we see those as notches on our belt without really being concerned about the, the spiritual status of that person. I know they came down and they walked the aisle. Do they really trust in Jesus as their Savior? Do they really know the Father through him? Do they really have eternal life? Because if we care more about the stats than about the hearts of those we minister to, we're losing sight of what really matters. And it's a quick road to becoming like those whitewashed tombs that Jesus called many of the Pharisees. As individuals and churches, we, we look great, but inside we're full of dead men's bones because we're, we're not focusing on the reality of the spiritual life. Those are all questions that deal with what is my motive in my spiritual life. Second question, what do I find myself boasting in? And maybe for those of us who are introverts, you say, I don't go around boasting about myself to others. Well, in your, in your quiet thoughts, what? What makes you lift yourself up? What do you feel pretty good about? Or where do you place your, your boasting? I ask that because Paul says in verse 14, he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all Paul would boast in. And humanly speaking, he had a human resume he, he could have gone with. He chose the cross. And, and we say, yeah, well, duh. We love the cross. We have it in our Sunday service, and we put pretty white frilly things on it. And we wear gold crosses, and of course we boast in the cross. We're the church. Okay, that's 2,000 years after the culture where this was written. To step back into their culture, I, I, I want to say it would be more like saying, I boast in the electric chair. Or I boast in lethal injection. Because the cross was a place res reserved for the worst criminals in the Roman Empire only. Historians tell us that the death on a cross was so brutal that in the rare case a woman was crucified, they would crucify her with her face to the cross because even in a society that brutal, no one wanted to look at the face of a woman suffering that much. There were Roman writers that said you should not even mention the cross in polite society. It's that gruesome of an execution. And it, it was not allowed for most Roman citizens. If you were a Roman citizen, the only time you could be crucified is if you were guilty of the highest treason against the empire. Most Roman citizens were exempted from it. And if you want to know how much of the world viewed the cross at that time, you got to go back to some ancient graffiti. Going through some of the large cities we drove through on our recent journey, we saw a lot of graffiti. Graffiti is nothing new. It happened in the Roman Empire. 200 A.D. This is some of the earliest graffiti we have. I want to show you this. And it's a little bit hard to see with the lighting, so I'll trace it. And you can follow my hand. What you see here is a cross. And the body of a man being crucified on that cross. And you can see the head. 
I'll say it's the head of a donkey because we have children present. And the caption on that graffiti in 200 AD in the Roman Empire said, Alexamenos worships his God. The Roman Empire was full of people that viewed worshiping someone who died on a cross as foolishness. And Paul says, that's the only thing I boast in. And not just a cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he write in 1 Corinthians 1, 23? He says, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Yeah, what kind of Messiah dies on a cross? That was a stumbling block for for many. And folly to, to Gentiles. What foolishness. What foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why should we boast in the cross? Well, I want to give you three reasons. You could spend a lifetime answering that question. First one is this. It shows us the wisdom of God. God is holy. God cannot condone sin. In fact, if you go back and reread the flood accounts, says, as he looked at his creation, his heart was filled with pain because wickedness had abounded so much in the world. That's why he sent the flood. He is a just God who cannot condone sin. He's also a gracious God. That's why he spared eight. But to look at that quandary as humans, we would not be able to come up with a solution. You've got a God who is just, and must punish sin because of his holy wrath. And you've got a God who is love, who desires fellowship with the human race. How? And in the councils of eternity past, the Trinity, as they convened with one another, came to the answer of the cross. That's how you solve that quandary. God solves that quandary in his wisdom. That's why... Paul says in Romans 6, the cross, verse 26, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. How is he just? The father poured his wrath against your sin and mine on his son. It had to be dealt with. That's how he was just. But it doesn't stop there. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In his love, those who receive that sacrifice of his son can be reconciled to him. That's the wisdom of God. That's one reason to boast in the cross. How wise is our God beyond our understanding? No one counsels him. Okay, Psalm 8510 says, righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's what happened at the cross through the wisdom of our God. Second, it shows the sovereignty of God. There are many in the world that would list Jesus as a hapless or tragic victim of mankind. That that he got crucified. And they leave it there. But is that all there is to the story? No. Acts 4.27. The early church is praying to God. And they say, truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And those groups got together and they crucified Christ, right? Truth is, every one of us is guilty for his crucifixion because it was your sin and mine upon him. But was he a hapless victim? No, what's verse 28 say to God? They, they pray, they, they gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was God's plan, God's sovereignty unfolding even through the wicked hands of men. He is sovereign. We see this in the prophecies, and I can only touch two or three of them. I want to show you a list that you can find on Bible Gateway. We've gone through this before on Sundays, but centuries before Christ in the Old Testament, you can find things predicted like he will be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. He will die among criminals, Isaiah 53, 12. His clothes will be divided and lots cast for his garment, Psalm 22, 18. He will be buried with the rich, Isaiah 53, 9. And you see all of those fulfilled in the New Testament accounts. There are many times over more than that. I'd encourage you to study, but that's one way we know he was not a hapless victim. This was God's sovereignty unfolding in our world. There was also the omniscience of Christ as he walked through those years and weeks and days to the cross. Was he completely caught off guard by what happened? Not at all. At least three times he, he bluntly told his disciples that he must die at the hands of men and, and rise again. And then when you get closer, you see even more specifics. He wanted to celebrate the Passover with his disciples before he died. And he would celebrate that Passover. He, he told his guys, hey, you go find a guy with water in the city, which was unusual because usually women carried the water. You find him, he'll show us a place where we can celebrate the Passover. That's exactly what happened. Was he surprised by Judas going out? No. No, in fact, in the upper room, he said, Judas, what you're about to do, go quickly. Was he surprised that Peter would deny him? No, he said, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And all oh, the rest of you guys, you're all going to scatter. We see it in his omniscience, but even the timing of the crucifixion was according to God's perfect plan. No matter what man wanted. You remember multiple times along the way, whether they tried to arrest him or throw him off a cliff. He often eluded them. And you know what he would tell his guys? He said, because what? My hour, my hour has not yet come. But then I love and it ought to bring a smile to our face that the religious leaders, you know their goal was not to crucify him during the Passover feast? That's what they wanted for their timing. How do I know that? Matthew 26, 3. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. There are millions of people there 
Josephus estimates 2.5 million, often at the time of Passover. There were Roman soldiers there. Something like that could cause a riot. They didn't want to do it during the feast, but guess what? That's around the time when Judas came to them and made his little offer. And that was an offer too good to refuse. So when was Christ crucified? During the Passover feast, but they did not want him to be crucified during. You say, why? Well, think about what was going on in Jerusalem. Josephus also estimated that at those Passovers at that time, about 250,000 sheep were being slaughtered in the temple. Hundreds of priests just to do the job. Why? So the Israelites could remember God's deliverance from Egypt when he came and said, a firstborn in every home will die. But, it, but if you slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the, the doorway, you will be passed over. And what did Paul say about Jesus Christ? What does he call him in 1 Corinthians 5, 7? He calls him Christ, our Passover. So Jesus was crucified during the Passover feast just as God designed it despite the whims of men. It shows his sovereignty. Finally, it shows the loving provision of God. I was thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane this week. Did you know Gethsemane means olive press? You know, just as an olive is squeezed and that precious oil comes out, Jesus was, was squeezed under the weight of the coming crucifixion. And, and we see his obedience to the Father and his love for us flow out. I read this week that in that garden today, if you go there, there are still olive trees. And some of those olive trees are over 2,000 years old, which means what? They were there on this evening. Our Savior prayed the prayer in Luke 22, 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You say, what cup is he talking about? What cup? Well, you got to know your Old Testament to understand what cup he's talking about. Isaiah 51, 17 points us the right direction. Wake yourself, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. I believe along with many, that is why he sweat drops of blood in the garden. Not primarily what was about to happen physically, but because the wrath of the Father was about to be poured out on him as he took your sin and mine upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished, paid in full. That, that gives all of those statements more poignancy. It points to his loving provision. These are reasons to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to dive deeper, I strongly recommend a book called The Murder of Jesus by John MacArthur. Powerful insights into what happened in the days leading up to the cross and the cross itself. But bottom line, 
We need a big view of the cross in our lives as believers. It should not be something we think about once a month on a third Sunday. It should be at the center of our meditations and our living along with the resurrection which followed. Last week I told you about that big cross out of Amarillo, Texas. Sometimes words don't do justice. So I wanted to show you. That's my family at the very bottom. So you can see the size of that cross. Just, just the other side of Amarillo. Gigantic. But more than a physical cross at a rest stop, we need a big view of the cross. Locked in our eyes of faith as we go through our life. Something happens. Something happens when that is the case. What does Paul say? I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What happens as we focus on the cross? The, the sinful world system which raise, rages against God, it, it loses its appeal in our lives. And it loses its power over our lives. So as we close this section, I just want to say this. If the sinful world system is swaying me today, if it, if it has my attention and I am walking in their footsteps, perhaps I need to renew a big vision of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in my life. I need to place my boast there again and in nothing in this world. What did Jeremiah say in chapter 9, verse 23? Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Exactly what Jesus said eternal life is, knowing God. What do I boast in? Next question, what, what really counts? In God's eyes. If you were to poll 100 people in this world, what really counts? What really matters? You'd probably get 100 different answers. I'm not interested in asking 100 people. I want to ask God, what really counts in your eyes in this short time that I have here? And Paul gets at it in verse 15. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation, a new creation. Now, we understand the first part if we've been here through this book. Of course, circumcision doesn't count for anything. You don't need to do it to be saved. But why does he say nor uncircumcision? Well, he's saying to the Galatians, even if you embrace this freedom in Christ and choose not to be circumcised, that's not the end of it all. You know, we can get caught up in, oh, I celebrate my freedom and I don't do this and I do that and... And stop there. And he's like, that's not the end either. I, I'm part of this denomination. I'm part of this denomination. I do this. I don't do that. And it's still all very focused on externals, right? It doesn't count for anything. Says what counts is a, a new creation. Paul talks about that new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
we talk with folks or we look at our own lives, we got to get beyond what I do or don't do. Got to get to the question, am I a new creation in Christ? Are you a new creation in Christ? And it's God's way of saying, again, as he said all through his word, our works cannot save us. It takes an act of God. Go back to Genesis. We all know the Tower of Babel and the story of Abraham, at least to some extent. But have you ever read Genesis 11 and 12 back to back and notice the contrast? Genesis 11. They're building that Tower of Babel. And God ends up scattering them, changing their language. Was that because God hates architecture? No. No. What was their motive for building that tower? That we might make a name for ourselves. It was human pride on display. The very next chapter, Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, calls him to faith in him. And what does he tell Abraham? I will make your name great. The contrast is startling. What does that tell us? The, the only way humans find their true significance is to lay down our human pride, confess our sins, submit to God, and follow him in faith. That's it. And that's where the new creation begins. It takes the Holy Spirit. He's always been at work in creation. You can follow that thread through the Bible, too. Go back to the original creation. Remember Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There was the Spirit of God hovering at the outset of those days of creation, Right? It was also present at the outset of a new creation. Matthew 3, Jesus' baptism, 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The Holy Spirit at work in the creation and the new creation. Going back to creation, Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What happened in John 20 after Jesus rose and he met with his disciples? John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It takes God's work. It takes a new creation. And he says to all of you who understand that and believe this, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Those are nice Bible words. What do they mean? Peace. We're no longer enemies with God. Because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Mercy. We will not get the eternal hell that you and I deserve because of Jesus Christ. All who walk by this rule and upon the Israel of God. What is the Israel of God? A lot of ink has been spilt about this little verse here. 
I agree with those that look at this verse in context. They look at the New Testament and they see that the word Israel shows up about 65 times. In every place outside of this passage where the word Israel shows up, it is referring to Jewish people by race, whether they're Jewish believers or Jewish unbelievers or the Jewish nation as a whole. So if we remain consistent, we're going to go with the, the thought that here it also is referring to Jewish people, but a specific group of Jewish people. He says, the Israel of God. What is the Israel of God? Well, I love God's timing. I was in John in my personal quiet times, and just a couple days ago, I was in John chapter 8, and you remember he's talking with the Jews, and they thought they were all right because they had Abraham as their earthly father. And he said, no, no, no. No, the devil's your father because you're not believing my words. You're trying to kill me. Abraham wouldn't do those things. And then at the end of that, you know what he tells them? John 8, 45, he says, I tell you the truth. You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Listen to this. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So who is the Israel of God? It is those Jews like Paul who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation in him alone, and put their faith in that gospel. But bringing it around to practical matters, I want us all to ask ourselves this morning, am I a new creation in Christ? Born again, born from above, as he says in John 3. Because if I'm just playing at religion, I need to be reborn. I need to be made a new creation by God's word. Final question. What could it cost me to hold on to the true gospel? I say that because of verse 17. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. He sounds like a teacher with a rambunctious classroom. Say, enough, enough. And whether he's talking to the false teachers in Galatia that might have caught wind of this letter or the, the Christians being swayed themselves, knock it off. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. They were talking about a mark, right? You've got to get circumcision to be saved, Christian men. Now, he says, you want to talk about marks? I'll, I'll talk with you about marks. I have suffered for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of that suffering had happened in Galatia. Some of these folks may have remembered it. He showed up there, preached the gospel, got stoned, left for dead in Acts 14. And then when he came to, instead of running away, he got back up and walked back into that city. It's likely he still had scars from that event and many other sufferings that he had experienced for Jesus Christ. You see, Paul did throughout his life what the author of Hebrews instructed us. Hebrews 13, 12. says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He was writing to a group of believers thinking on 
turning it back on Jesus and compromising because of persecution. He's saying, don't do it. Jesus suffered for you. Go outside the gate with him and bear the reproach of Christ with him. Why? Why would Paul do this? Why should you do this? Why should I do this? Well, the motives come from looking two directions. One, looking back to the cross. Jesus did it. I want to follow in his footsteps. I want to be faithful to the truth. But also looking forward. Because Hebrews 13, verse 14 goes on to say, For we have here no lasting city. Y'all know we're just passing through this life. Don't invest everything here. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This future perspectives, perspective reminds us of Jesus' words, Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I asked the question, why would a, a young couple that lives in Prescott Valley with a, with a young boy named Danny say yes to the Lord when he called them to go overseas on a mission, to, to pick up and, and leave? How easy it would have been, humanly speaking, to say, wrong address, God, wrong season of life. But no, they, they heard his call and said yes, and you're going to hear from them. Why? They've looked back at the cross and they realize this is not a lasting city here. What's Paul talking about here, focusing on the marks on his body? There's a reality. is this. Grace is free. Okay? He's been preaching that this whole book. We receive it by faith. But there is a cost to be incurred in our lives if we will faithfully follow Jesus through this fallen world. You want a strong picture of it? Read the New Testament. Read Pilgrim's Progress and see what happened to Christian and his fellow Christian partner walking with him when they showed up in the town of Vanity Fair. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you also. Think about the cost of following Jesus. And I'm going to close by telling you, if we finally got around to showing our boys the, the movie Field of Dreams this week. Love that movie. Always have loved that movie. It hit me deeper now that I'm a dad with three sons of my own. For those of you who may not have seen it or saw it three decades ago, just a brief reminder of what happened in there. You got a farmer played by Kevin Costner and his wife that live out in Iowa. Here's a voice out in his cornfield. If you build it, he will come. And he comes to discover that what the voice was talking about was a baseball field. And so he goes out with his tractor at great cost to himself and his farm because corn is his livelihood. Gets on his tractor and starts mowing down his corn. And the neighbors line up along the street. What's that fool doing? He's crazy. He's mowing down his crop. He took that step of faith at great cost, right? 
And it was at great cost. He nearly foreclosed on his farm. You remember throughout the movie, someone keeps coming and says, look, you're about to foreclose here. You can't pay your bills. And as he gets further in, he realizes that this field is for a couple people's benefit. There's shoeless Joe Jackson, who was exiled from baseball for being part of a White Sox team that threw a World Series so he could come back and, and play again. Was it all about him? Partially, but not all. Then he... Then he goes and meets an author named Terrence Mann who's become somewhat disillusioned with life and brings him there. And Terrence Mann, again, finds some perspective and, and steps into eternity with the, the baseball players. But, but what is, was it all about Terrence Mann? No, if you remember the movie, you remember the final scene. You see, the character played by Kevin Costner, his dad had died when he was a teenager. And they had been having an argument in... Kevin Costner never had the chance to apologize to his father. But they're out by the field one day, and he looks out, and he sees his father as a young man out there, back from the dead, long before he had ever known him. And his father loved baseball in that season of his life. And, and at first he watches, and he, Kevin Costner almost walks away after a brief conversation. But then he, he grabs some gloves, and he says, Hey, Dad, how about a catch? And this is the part that hit me different as a dad. I'm sitting there. My family doesn't even know this. I, I didn't have them going down my face, but both my eyes are like <laughs> filling up with water because of this precious reunion with his father from whom he had been separated. And I think about that, and I think about Paul. I think about us. Even though we already have eternal life with God, if we trust in Jesus, we know him that there is an in-person reunion coming someday with our Savior. And if nothing else will keep you going on when you get the marks of this world, let that do it. Think about what's coming, that reunion with our, our amazing God. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's coming, believer. Don't give up. Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. I'm sure if you were to ask Kevin Costner's character at the end of that movie, was it worth the cost? be reunited with your father oh yeah i would have paid anything i would have paid anything you asked paul today if you could was it worth the cost he'd say listen i was saved by grace through faith he died for me that's why i'm here yes it was worth the suffering i did for him to remain faithful because this glory far outweighs those temporary sufferings i went through in my short life on earth I want to close by asking the questions we started with in this series. When you look at your spiritual life, would you say it's characterized more by futility or freedom in Christ? Would you say it, it's characterized more by living in the flesh, out of the flesh, or, or living by faith? Would you say it's characterized more by self? 
or, or the Spirit of God bringing the life of Christ to bear in our lives. It all comes back to grace, and that's where Paul closes. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And that's not an uncommon way for him to close a letter, but in this letter, all about freedom, it's like an exclamation point. Because grace is the only place you will find the freedom you long for. Not through works of the flesh, but the unmerited favor of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we come before you now. We come before you, and I ask that you prepare our hearts to, to remember once more through the communion service you've given to us the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I pray, as has been mentioned in this message, that, that we would not leave it here, that we would walk out of here with these questions in our hearts and bring them before you and ask you to bring us to your desired answers. What, what are my motives what do I boast in? Do I, do I boast in the cross? And am I willing to pay the price to follow you faithfully? What really counts in this life? Bring us through some of those questions and let the answers play out in our lives, please, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.